Hi, I'm Andre Martins. This is 38 Mil Plus. It's time to end the AIDS epidemic. In this episode, you're going to hear about research and policy. Joining me today, two representatives from MFAR, the Foundation for AIDS Research. Hello, everybody. I'm excited to be here today with Rowena Johnston, Vice President of Research at MFAR. Hello, Rowena. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I have so many questions for you. Before we dive in, would you tell us what MFAR is and how important this organization has been in the fight against HIV-AIDS? Yeah, so MFAR really bases um, its work on the premise that the only way we're going to end HIV-AIDS is through research. So we have a number of different ways that we approach that. The program I oversee is our research department, and that that um, funds research that, you know, the way people traditionally think about it, laboratory research and research in people, testing and looking for new treatments and um, ultimately a cure. And that's really where most of our research is focused. But we do also have a couple of other programs, our Treat Asia program, where they look at how antiretroviral therapy is being rolled out across Asia and some of the other conditions that people in Asia are living with, like hepatitis B or C or human papillomavirus, just to give you a couple of examples. And then we have our policy department where they're looking at ways in which we're gonna end HIV through, for example, pre-exposure prophylaxis uptake. How do we re reach the populations um, who are appropriate users of the different technologies we have? So at NFI, we really try to approach this from every direction that research is pertinent and how are we going to bring an end to HIV? Thank you for that. So when you talk about research, um, how important are those researches in the fight against HIV AIDS? Oh, the, the researchers are um, really central to all the efforts. These are the people who come up with all the new ideas, the great new directions that are the most promising to go. They look at what is, what's the progress that has been made so far and how can we build on that how can we make approaches and therapies that are right for the for different sets of people and, and ultimately how we're going to end this epidemic? Talking about approaches and therapies, how has HIV care changed over time? And where do you see it headed in the future? Yeah, well, as you know, in, in the very beginning, there was no treatment at all. And in fact, even in the 70s, we, we probably didn't even have the recognition of AIDS that was already probably spreading pretty widely throughout the United States. Then in the early 80s, we had the recognition that this really is a syndrome, a disease, and we had no treatments at all. And there was really very little that anyone could do for people living with AIDS. And then we started to get single drugs that, that helped a little bit, and, and they were able singly to prolong people's lives. Then we moved into the 90s where we were able to put together drug combinations and those really just revolutionized how AIDS is treated and even prevented people from developing to the point of AIDS. So putting those combinations together so that HIV would have no possibility of escaping those drug treatments, that was really a turning point in our ability to control the epidemic. So now what we're seeing, you know, as we move towards this current time, we're seeing people trying to um, engineer, if you like, long-acting treatment. Because what we have right now is antiretroviral therapy that people have to take every day. Now, if you had a way that you could administer antiretroviral therapy that, you know, maybe even only once every six months, that would really free up 
people's daily lives and, and, and allow them not to have to think about taking that medication every day. It might help people adhere. And certainly, you know, people are not reminded all the time of their HIV status. It's under control. They only have to deal with it once every six months, for example. And then if you go even further along into the future, the way I see it is we could imagine that people might engineer antibodies. That, that's kind of another arm that could treat people in a similar way to antiretroviral therapy, but you could also deliver it in an engineered way that maybe you would only even have to get it once. And these genetically engineered antibodies would just continue to be produced in your body. And, and you know, maybe, maybe, you know, this is the way we're looking into the future now, really. Maybe this would be a one-time treatment and you'd be done. And at that point, you're looking at something that is kind of similar to a functional HIV cure. This is what people would call a functional cure, where you still have HIV, but you no longer have to have it treated on a daily or even, you know, six monthly basis. Um, so, so people do call that a functional cure. I think that terminology is kind of problematic because having the word cure in there confuses people a little bit. I think when people think of the word cure, what most people think of is really the eradication of the virus. And I think that's really that, that final frontier, if you like, that, that's really where we're aiming for, where we could come up with a way that could eradicate the virus from a person's body. So they really are cured in the way that people understand that word to mean. And you have the virus no more. You know, you, you certainly don't need any treatment and there's no possibility that you could transmit it to others. And that's certainly the ultimate goal of the research program that we're working on right now. I'm so excited that people have today, you know, uh, ways to treat this disease without, you know, have uh, death centers. And now this disease impacted my family back in the 80s, and there was nothing available to them. But it's interesting that now that you mentioned cure. Uh, when we speak of cure, about 12 years ago, there was the Berlin patient. And it was reported that this patient was cured from HIV-AIDS, not a functional cure, an actual Cure. I must assume that the treatment this person has received has been replicated with many other patients without success, because here we are, you now 12 years later, and the, you know we have not reported another cure except for the most recent London patient. Uh, why this cure worked well for the London patient and not others? Um, the, so the London patient, in a lot of ways, was similar to the Berlin patient. He was a man who had been living with the HIV for a fairly long time. You know, he had been diagnosed with HIV many years ago. Uh, he was taking treatment for his uh, HIV, and that was working out pretty well. But then, unfortunately, he was diagnosed with, in his case, lymphoma. And it was a late-stage lymphoma. And the doctors had, a, you know, they tried the, the usual ways that you would try to treat a lymphoma with, you know, chemotherapy and um, even trying to work out how to do a stem cell transplant with his own cells. All of these approaches didn't work. And so those doctors decided to do what had been done in the London patient case as well, to see if they could find a donor of stem cells. So somebody else who would give him some of their own stem cells. And what they looked for is a person who had a genetic mutation. That genetic mutation is known as CCR5 Delta 32. It's kind of a long and unwieldy name. But it's, it's a mutation that means that the people who have this mutation do not have the CCR5 protein. And the reason that's important is because HIV, in almost all cases, needs the CCR5 protein in order to get into the cells. 
So we think that's probably how the Berlin patient was cured. His immune system was rebuilt with CCR5 Delta 32 cells. And so any HIV that was in his body had nowhere to go. So then fast forward the 12 or so years, as you say, and we come up with the London patient. They tried the same thing. Uh, and lo and behold, the, the same outcome seems to have happened. He received stem cells that had no CCR5, which means the HIV has no way of getting into those cells, which means that the HIV more or less dies out, partly due to the transplant process itself, and, and partly those cells just cannot act as hosts for the HIV anymore. So it really does look like the London patient was cured as well. He has gone a couple of years now with no antiretroviral therapy. There's been no reappearance of his HIV. Um, things are looking very good for him. I will say there is another patient in the, the pipeline that we haven't heard as much about just yet, and that's the Dusseldorf patient. Um, that's another patient in Germany who... Uh, received a stem cell transplant also, also using CCR5 Delta 32 cells. He has also stopped taking antiretroviral therapy. There has also been no reappearance of HIV in his case, but you know, not as much time has gone by. So we're kind of holding back and just waiting to see what happens, but it does look really promising. So we, we see that this stem cell transplant approach using CCR5 Delta 32 cells um, does look promising. That's fascinating. To your point, very promising. I'm just curious, how, how many of those researches uh, MFAR has been involved in it? Well, we were involved in characterizing the cure in the Berlin patient. And then we were involved in characterizing the cure of the London patient. And in fact, um, years ago, really not long after the Berlin patient case happened, we recognized the importance of repeating the Berlin patient case, just to make sure that this is a real finding, because you know this really revolutionized how people think about HIV cure. Everybody up until that point thought that it was simply impossible to cure HIV, why even bother trying? Correct. And now the Berlin patient comes along and wow, it looks like maybe he is cured. So it was really important that we get a repeat of that. So we put together a group of European researchers um, whose, whose explicit purpose and goal was to find people living with HIV who require a stem cell transplant. Let's give them a stem cell transplant in as many cases as possible. Let's see if we can find a CCR5 Delta 32 donor for them. And then let's measure and see whether or not those people are cured. This is how the London patient characterization came about. This is how the Dusseldorf patient came about. And those researchers in Europe have a collection of probably around 50 uh, people living with HIV who received stem cell transplants. Now, some of them got regular, what we call wild type cells, that, that you know, that there is no mutation there. Some of them got cells with the genetic mutation. So that also gives us an opportunity to compare the outcomes. You know, does it really make the critical difference that the cells have the genetic mutation? This is only possible because AMPAR put together this research team with this explicit goal of comparing these outcomes and really learning and understanding the nitty-gritty of what underlies these cases and how can we learn from those to, to make a cure that's available to everybody because, you know, as you know, these stem cell transplants really are hardcore, they're, they're complicated, they're kind of dangerous, and they're really a last resort for people who have cancer. This is not 
something that we're going to use to cure people around the world. But it really provides interesting, fundamental, vitally important information to us as to how we could design a cure that would look something like that, but that would actually be doable for people around the world. Your work is fascinating. So uh, thank you for everything you do uh, for the community. Um, switching gears a little bit to COVID-19, I feel that there are so many parallels between HIV and COVID-19. So speaking of research, is research on HIV research on PAUs giving the focus on COVID-19 pandemic? And how much of MFAR focus is changed towards COVID-19? Well, COVID is, is really interesting, right? And it's something that we're all living in the middle of and, and is really directly affecting every person on the planet. And when COVID came along, we at AMFAR knew that there, there was a lot in common between HIV and COVID. They're both viruses. They both spread around the world. And, you know, in the early phases with HIV, as well as with COVID, there was fear and there was a lack of knowledge. And, you know, we in the HIV world understand how dangerous that can be. And we know that research is the way that you're going to find the answers so that people need not have as much fear and so that we do understand more and so that we know how to deal with what we're facing. You know, we also have researchers who are experienced in conducting all the tests and all the research that is specific to a viral pandemic. And so we thought it was really our duty to turn some of our attention, some of our attention to COVID and to lend the expertise that we have as a viral pandemic organization, essentially, to lend some of that expertise to see what we could contribute to the fight against COVID. And so we did fund uh, two research teams. One of those research teams is looking directly at how we can design treatments for people who have severe COVID once you've reached that point where you're in the hospital, maybe even in the intensive care unit, how do we know which direction your disease is going to turn? Can we tell in advance and, and can that help us inform what treatments you should be getting to help you turn you back towards a, a good outcome? The other grant is looking directly at how can we um, design a vaccine ultimately. What are the appropriate immune responses that get you to recover well from COVID and how can we use that information to help us design a vaccine and to understand long-term, how can we get a vaccine that will last for a longer time and really protect you into the future? So those were the two grants that we started out with. But I wanna point out, so moving forward, we're continuing to work and focus on COVID, but we're doing that by looking at the effects of COVID in people living with HIV. So, and this is really an understudied area. I get it, the world is focused on, you know, everybody in the world living, you know, in this time of COVID. Yep. But what we wanted to know as AMFAR is how is COVID affecting people living with HIV? So we started out, I actually did a project where I, uh, it was a very intense project, I have to tell you. Uh, I looked at every report that was published that included information about people living with HIV who also got COVID. Thousands, really, literally actually about 4,500 scientific reports that I had to read. I extracted the data from those. I looked to see what were the outcomes specifically for the people living with HIV. Did they survive or did they die? Did, were they hospitalized? Were they out of the hospital? Were they asymptomatic? All of those things. 
I also extracted the information, which antiretroviral therapy were they taking? And then I put all of that data into a statistical program, crunched all the numbers. In the end, there were uh, almost 7,000 people living with HIV in my study. I, I did all the analyses. And, you know, luckily what we're seeing is that people living with HIV are not at increased risk of dying from COVID. Possibly, maybe they have a little bit more severe outcomes, but re not really, nothing that's really noticeable. Antiretroviral therapy doesn't have an effect. And really the, the issues for people living with HIV are the, are the same ones that we see for other people with COVID, especially heart disease and chronic respiratory disease in the case of people living with HIV. But anyway, that project was an important first step for us. We wanted to know what are the risks for people living with HIV? And now that we feel that we've answered that question, where we're headed in the future is to understand what are the long-term consequences of COVID in people living with HIV. This long hauler syndrome that people have talked about, does that manifest differently in people living with HIV? Do they have it more severely, maybe even less severely? And if there are differences, what can we learn from that to, to, to see how we can help people living with HIV or people not living with HIV? And then the other thing that we're really interested in is did the infection with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, did, did that infection change the HIV reservoir in people living with HIV? Did it make it so their reservoir is larger or smaller or more easily to reactivate or, or any of these things that might ultimately change the prospects of a, an HIV cure in people living with HIV? There are a lot of things that we could learn about how that second virus, COVID, um, changed the first virus, HIV. So those are the directions we're going. So yes, we have turned some attention to COVID. I would say the bulk of it is because we want to understand how it affects the experience of living with HIV. That's fascinating. Um, another question for you, probably my final question, because I know, I know you're pretty busy. So uh, are there a few specific examples we could share with us the scientific community learned from HIV now is applying those learnings to our response to COVID-19 pandemic? You know, the first thing that came into my mind when you said that is a story I'm finding really interesting. I mean, we, you know, very recently learned about the efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. And both of those vaccines are based on mRNA. And uh, this is a, a genetic code you would use to, you would inject the genetic code into the person and then that genetic code would start making the proteins that would actually be the vaccine. And I learned quite recently that, so first of all, that there, there would normally, or, you know, way back, there used to be concerns about using RNA or mRNA in that type of setting because of how it might spur unwanted immune reactions it turns out that the, the type of RNA that both of these companies are using and, and other people who are looking at similar approaches, this is a modified type of mRNA. And, and the person who invented this way of modifying the RNA to make it safer, to make it so that it does not have the unwanted immune responses is an HIV researcher. Uh, he's a researcher who is actually uh, one of our grantees. He's working um, in a team that we put together, a gene therapy team, looking to come up with a combination way to cure HIV 
using his technology as one of the ingredients. But, but this gentleman, Drew Weissman, is the guy who came up with the way to modify the RNA so that you could use it in exactly this kind of setting. That's I, I find that really um, a very compelling and surprising and gratifying, for that matter, story. Romina, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and a lot of fascinating conversation. Well, thanks for having us. Always excited to tell the Amphar story. Thanks, Romina Johnston. Up next, we'll discuss policy with Greg Millett. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm here with Greg Millett today from MFAR. He's the Vice President of Public Policy for MFAR. Hey, Greg, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Andre? I'm doing great, man. Uh, thank, uh, thank you for talking to us. Uh, I have several questions for you. Before we start, though, would you let us know a little about the work you do for MFAR? Sure. So I'm um, a vice president of AMFAR, and I'm the director of the public policy office. And our office is responsible to for um, interacting with um, congressional officials on various policies related to both domestic as well as global HIV. Um, we also are a data office, and we like to make data accessible for journalists, for advocates, and others to really understand um, how HIV is impacting their specific communities. Thank you for that. So uh, speaking of impacting specific communities, so people of color are most impacted by HIV. There are marginalized populations within these minority groups where policies such as criminalization laws that add to the disparities for HIV. How is MFAR influencing change in this area? Sure. So there's different, there's uh, quite a few things that MFAR has been doing um, in this area, and particularly my office. One of the things that we did a couple of years ago was to launch a database um, right after President Trump announced his initiative to end HIV in the United States by 2030. We were happy to hear about that national initiative, but we also knew that there are specific policies at the federal level but also at the state level, that's gonna make it difficult for us to end HIV. Uh, so what we did is we launched a database, a dashboard um, called the AMFAR EHE, Ending the HIV AIDS Epidemic uh, Database, uh, where we show all types of data about HIV infection and HIV infection among black populations, Latino populations and others. But then we also map those data both nationally and geographically um, at the state and county level to show specific policies. So policies such as um, criminalization of people living with HIV, policies um, such as um, lack of health insurance for transgender or for lesbian and gay individuals in specific states, uh, policies such as access to insurance because of the Affordable Care Act in some states um, not um, expanding Medicaid, and even some policies looking at the degree to which ICE um, has been um, uh, having ICE raids um, and deporting people in specific states to see um, if that might be associated with people not coming in and getting tested for HIV. So that database has been a large part of what we use to really try and track the policies um, that might be associated with um, ending the HIV AIDS epidemic and policies that work and policies that don't. Another thing that we do to really try and take a look how um, policies might impact people living with HIV and particularly communities of color is a lot of the research we do. So this year we have been doing a lot of research around COVID-19 and we've been showing how some of the same disparities that we see in HIV and communities of color we're seeing with COVID-19. Uh, so earlier this year we published a paper that got a lot of media attention showing 
that um, African-Americans who lived in counties that were primarily African-American had higher rates of COVID-19 cases as well as deaths. And that was associated with rates of unemployment. It was associated with not having access to health insurance. It was associated uh, with lower income. We published another paper right afterwards looking at uh, Latinx, Latino communities um, in counties in the US, where we found a lot of the same issues of um, lack of access to health insurance, um, lower income, unemployment, all associated with greater rates of COVID-19, as well as living in homes um, that are more densely populated. Um, the other thing that we found in that analysis was that monolingual Spanish speakers, people who only spoke Spanish, if you have a greater number of monolingual Spanish speakers, it's associated with COVID-19. All of this points to spe specific policies that we need to be dealing with in terms of housing, in terms of income, in terms of unemployment to address COVID-19 as well as HIV. The other thing that we've been doing is we've been having testimony on Capitol Hill with congressional officials uh, to talk about racial and ethnic disparities for HIV as well as COVID-19 and sharing the data that we've been doing uh, so that congressional officials can understand how they might um, introduce policies to, to help this, this, this issue out. Um, and then last, we've also been um, publishing reports. So this is the 10th year uh, that the Affordable Care Act was released in the United States. And we published a report in March uh, to show that it's wonderful that we have the Affordable Care Act, uh, but the Affordable Care Act is intricately linked with ending the HIV AIDS epidemic in the US. Um, and the problem is that now we're seeing higher rates of uninsurance since 2018 in communities of color. We showed that five of the seven states that are part of the president's ending the HIV AIDS plan have not expanded Medicaid. And why that's a problem is that people living with HIV and particularly communities of color are more likely to get their healthcare through Medicaid rather than private insurance. And then we also show that rates of uninsured are highest in these states um, that are part of the president's plan to end HIV. So we pull all of that information together to show that these policies are going against our plans to end HIV. Um, and last, um, I was a speaker for the opening plenary of the International AIDS Conference. And as part of that plenary, I pulled together all of these data on how policies can impact ending the HIV AIDS epidemic and how it disproportionately impacts communities of color. Uh, so these are some of the many ways that AMFAR is involved uh, with really trying to bring to life what the implications are and what the impact is of policies uh, towards um, people living with HIV and particularly communities of color who are living with HIV. Fascinating. Thank you so much for that. There is so much data and data that capture the learnings to our response to HIV AIDS pandemic. How are we leveraging that data today to help us respond to the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure. So there's a lot of different things that, that we've learned from HIV and particularly HIV and racial disparities that um, we are using now for COVID-19. So one of the big things is what I mentioned beforehand, that the social determinants of health are placing communities of color at highest risk for COVID-19 as well as HIV. So some of the same things that we saw for HIV in terms of homelessness, which increases the risk of HIV transmission because people who are HIV positive and homeless um, are less likely to be virally suppressed. Income, people with lower income have higher rates of COVID-19 uh, as well as HIV compared to individuals with higher income. 
Residential segregation is also associated with greater rates of HIV, um, as well as COVID-19. And then, of course, incarceration, which we spoke a little bit briefly about, is associated with greater rates of HIV, as well as COVID-19, and disproportionately impacts communities of color. So it's important that if we're putting together a plan to address COVID-19, we have to put together a plan like we did with HIV, like the President Obama's National HIV AIDS Strategy, um, where he actually addresses these social determinants of health so that we can really get at some of the impacts of marginalized communities of color. The other importance is healthcare. Um, as I mentioned before, the Affordable Care Act is central uh, for us in reducing HIV rates. And we need to make sure that the Affordable Care Act is also available for COVID-19. And we're seeing now some states that are expanding Medicaid uh, because of the COVID-19 um, economic crisis uh, and, and really trying to um, benefit from the Affordable Care Act. Um, we also know that we need a multi-pronged approach um, like with HIV. With HIV, we learned very quickly that there's no magic bullet. Um, there's, you just don't have a vaccine and everything is done. That There are many different parts of our prevention approach from condom use to um, harm reduction services for, um, for drug users uh, to many other different types of things that we need to do, diagnosing people Correct. early and getting them tested. You have to do the same thing with COVID-19 um, and we're learning from that. Um, and then last, we also really need to understand that we have to partner with communities. Um, communities are part of the solution. Uh, for addressing HIV. Um, and communities are gonna be part of the solution for addressing COVID-19 as well. Um, and we need to make sure that communities are intricately involved in um, issues that we're dealing with today, like how do we get um, contact tracing done effectively for COVID-19? Um, how do we make sure that communities are going to be able to or even want to take a vaccine once it's available? We did great work with HIV with the communities leading the response. We have to do the same thing with COVID-19. Perfect. What about education? So I have a question for you related to that. What is the impact of the lack of education associated with higher rates of HIV infection among young girls and women around the, around the world? That's a great question. So there, there have been several studies that have been done uh, looking at this. And, and why it's important is because um, young girls, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, and by young, I mean between the ages of 15 and 24, um, they're only 10% of the population in those areas, but they account for 25% of new infections globally. Um, and the connection that we see in study after study is that the more educated people are, um, including young girls, um, the more likely they are to be exposed to prevention information for HIV uh, through formal education and through the media, and the less likely they are to be HIV positive. And this is something that is extremely important for us to see. And it's also a part of what I talked about before about these social determinants of health and, and how these social determinants um, affect uh, people living with HIV or at risk for HIV. Um, we could use the social determinants for our benefit, like we're doing right now for young women in Africa. There's a program uh, that the US government has um, pulled together called the DREAMS program. Um, one of the parts of the DREAMS program is to increase education for young girls in Africa as a means, as an intervention uh, to decrease HIV rates. And it's actually been working. It's been a success. Um, so that's more of the type of work that we need to be doing both internationally as well as here in the United States to reduce new infections. I know you're so busy and we want to keep you doing the work that you do. I have only one more question for you. So uh, stigma, you played a huge role, in my opinion, in the spread of HIV back in the day, back in the 70s and in the, in the, in the early 80s. 
is stigma playing a role today in the spread of COVID-19? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we saw with HIV is that stigmatization is uh, really spreads transmission. It's associated with the spread of transmission. People who are stigmatized are less likely to access care. They're less likely to get tested. Um, uh, and that is something that we can't afford to do. And we're seeing stigma right now with um, COVID-19. Uh, we've seen people calling COVID-19 the Wuhan virus um, uh, or the Chinese virus. Um, and that is the type of stigma that is not helpful. Uh, for addressing an infectious disease that affects all of us. Um, we also saw that with um, um, meatpacking uh, facilities across the Midwest, a lot of the people who were infected in those meatpacking facilities were Latino workers. Um, and those Latino workers, when they would go to local towns, were discriminated against um, in grocery stores and other places. You, you can't, with an infectious disease, just have one community in one place and everybody else in another place. It, an infectious disease spreads everywhere. And and it makes, puts all of us at, at greater risk. And we have to address this type of stigma. We've seen the stigma play out as well for um, HIV and COVID-19 in the same way with black communities. Uh, for HIV, what you kept hearing is there's such high rates of HIV in black communities. What are they doing that's placing them at greater risk for HIV? And what we found out through research is that black communities are actually engaging in less risk behavior. They're more likely to get tested, but still have higher rates of HIV because of these social determinants of health that I talked about. The same thing is happening with COVID-19. Black communities are more likely to social distance, they're more likely to wear masks, uh, but they're still more likely to get COVID-19. And, and the stigma is unwarranted uh, because these communities are doing all the right things to prevent them from getting tested. The last thing that I'd say about the um, stigma is that it's gonna keep us from really addressing COVID-19 in a realistic way. We have a, two vaccines now that are incredibly effective. If we want to make sure that everyone in the population takes these vaccines, we need to make sure that we reduce stigma for those groups that are at highest risk of COVID-19. Um, and that's something that I think the federal government is very interested in and something that we all should be working towards to make sure that we don't have COVID-19 moving into 2021 and 2022. Thank you so much, Rag, for your time today. Thanks so much for the work you guys do in MFAR. Thank you, Andre. I appreciate it. The COVID-19 mRNA vaccines mentioned in this episode refer to the two widely reported clinical trial vaccine candidates with interim results showing 90% or more efficacy at preventing COVID-19. At the time of the recording, neither vaccine has been approved by the FDA. That wraps it up. Thanks for joining today. Thank you, MFAR. It's time to end the AIDS epidemic.